has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Chronic pain is a disease, and the problem is getting worse. The Institute of Medicine reported in 2011 that 116 million Americans suffer from chronic pain. That's one-third of the population. The costs of unrelieved pain are up to $635 billion annually for treatment and in lost productivity. We're also facing escalating rates of opioid abuse, overdoses, and deaths, which the Centers for Disease Control calls an epidemic. Dr. Melissa Cady's here. She's the challenge doctor, and she's going to talk about her book, Pain-demic. She explores why the pain problem is getting worse and not better. We'll investigate when medical treatments can help and which ones to avoid, when complementary and holistic approaches can benefit, and importantly, how we can take charge of our own health instead of waiting for somebody to do it for us. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Teva Pharmaceuticals, The Pain Community, and Boston Scientific. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Dr. Melissa Cady is the challenge doctor. She's an osteopathic physician, anesthesiologist, and pain specialist. Dr. Cady ran a part-time personal training business before and during medical school. In fact, she won Fittest Doctor Award for both Austin and San Antonio, Texas in 2012 and 2013. Dr. Cady, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you about the title of your book, Pain-demic. How did you come up with that? When I was thinking of writing a book, I, I just had a little brainstorming activity on a, at a weekend event, actually, for people considering being authors. And I really can't explain where it came from. It literally popped in my head when I started thinking of the word pain, and it just rolled off my tongue, and I couldn't believe I said it, and I shared it with people around me, and it was... It was a hit from everyone I shared it with, mm-hmm. so I went ahead and trademarked it, in fact, because it was, it was pretty uh, relevant to what we're dealing with in this country. Well, it's extremely relevant. And explain a little bit more about pain-demic and what that means. Sure. Well, obviously, we have an epidemic of chronic pain. It, that epidemic, you can even transfer it into saying it's more like a pandemic, where it's not just in the United States, but across the entire world. Right. And what's going on with this pandemic or epidemic, or as I say, pandemic, mm-hmm. is that there tends to be an overutilization of the opioids or injections or surgeries. And I say that because we know that it doesn't help everybody. So there's just a, a reflection that we need to take to step back from the situation and 
And that's why I called it pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, indeed, pain touches all of us at some point in our lives, when we're kids, adults, older adulthood, and uh, even at the end of life. And for at least a third of us, the pain doesn't go away. And globally, the World Health Organization estimates that pain threatens to condemn one in every 10 people alive today to die a painful death. I mean, it's really become, as you said, a pandemic and yet a silent one. Melissa, in medical school, you developed low back pain and it didn't go away. In fact, you had it for a year, but you overcame it. How? I went to see three different osteopathic physicians, three different allopathic physicians. But actually, the first one who happened to be a DO told me not to do anything for two weeks and almost this whole avoidance mentality. So I followed the protocol. Uh And as you can expect, it didn't get better. So what did you do next? It was outside of medical school at one of those little events where they just kind of teach for free, a lot of people in the community, um, different ways of dealing with pain. And I was the guinea pig. (laughs) (laughs) So I was on the table with four or five people learning how to do a lot of it was various things, connective tissue type releases, and, and it doesn't even seem like it was related to my back, but mm-hmm. they were releasing areas that were in my upper thigh area, hips, and I literally got off the table, and a huge portion of my pain, that, that huge intense pain subsided. There was well, still pain, mm-hmm. but I felt like, almost like you put WD-40 in me, <laughs> I felt like looser, wow. and I could move better, mm-hmm. and that was just, it was exhilarating because nothing at that point was helping me. You talk in your book about determining the cause of pain. What was the cause in your case? If I was to try to diagnose it, do I think maybe my mechanics or my connective tissue and things were not quite in a place of balance? Mm-hmm. I think things were a little off. Mm-hmm. Now, what did the MRI show of your lumbar spine? Someone told me, they probably say I'm like a, I look like a 70-year-old, but there's degenerative disc disease and, and some slight bulging and some tightening around the nerve roots. Mm-hmm. But really, there were so many things that, you know, I'm glad that I wasn't distracted by a lot of that. Right. Um, and I, I actually, at the time of my back pain, didn't have any MRIs done. I was pretty young, and so they weren't really pushing that on me. It was uh, the MRI that I had done later, reflective of a lot of things that many of us have in our backs going on, just like wrinkles. Mm -hmm. And how old were you at that time? I was like 26-ish, and so I'm 40, almost 42 now. Let me explain something important. Just because you get an MRI of your low back, and it shows disc herniations or degeneration of discs, that may not be the source of your pain. And actually, that's a source of confusion a lot of the time in patients that I see. Uh, For example, there was a study that was done that took 100 patients who had no pain whatsoever. They had an MRI done to evaluate the low back. And guess what they found? Anywhere from 29 to 76 of them had disc herniations or other abnormalities. But again, they didn't have any pain. So, How did the back pain impact your life? For me, I was having trouble actually tying my shoes. I mean, at 26, I mean, you're trying to go to medical school and study. And and for someone who tends to value being very active when I was going through all of that. so Mm -hmm. You know, you write about listening to your body and understanding what it needs. What are we listening for? If we pay attention that certain movements start creating pain or maybe perhaps even noticing that you know, I used to be able to do this, or I used to be able to cross my leg on this leg, but now I can't do it on the other leg. And and comparing how 
things have changed, whether it's from side to side, from front to back, or just your what your activities are that you're doing mm-hmm. and how it's impacting you. Right. You know, most of the time, chronic pain isn't life-threatening, but it certainly can be life-changing. How does that happen? When you have the pain, you stop doing sometimes the things you really love. Mm-hmm. You stop doing the things that really give you gratification or a sense of self or purpose. Right. And, and unfortunately, what happens along with that is this other layer of you decrease your interactions with other people. Mm-hmm. You feel like this invisible burden of pain is so hard for people to comprehend or you don't want to feel like you're, you're not you know, strong enough to handle it. And so you start decreasing your social interaction, which is, as you know, is incredibly important for us as human beings. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen pain erode the foundation of my patients. I've seen it affect concentration, sleep, emotional stability, and interpersonal relationships. Have you wondered how you can best work with your doctor to feel better? We'll find out after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Teva, the leading global pharmaceutical company committed to increasing access to high-quality health care by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Melissa Cady, the challenge doctor, who's here to talk about her book, Pain-demic. Melissa, Pain is complex and can be really tough to diagnose. So how can a patient and doctor work together to help the patient feel better? The physician, first of all, should have a very open mind, which I feel like you are extraordinary at. Thank you. And and really looking at the big picture and really giving the sense to the patient that you're trying to um, understand their situation. What they say, you actually believe. Mm -hmm. Patients really grab onto that. And I realize there's also this lack of um, education that really occurs between patients and physicians. Mm-hmm. So the education piece from physicians to patients is incredibly important, but it's also a responsibility of the patient to engage in their own self-care and bring that to the table with the physician bringing their, their good listening skills and their multiple options, not just one favorite option and actually put that on the table together. Mm -hmm. I mean, the system gives us very little time to interact with patients anymore, so educating them becomes really challenging. And there's great variability in pain education, uh, knowledge, and decision-making on the part of physicians and healthcare providers. Uh, Dr. Katie, what are the insurance-driven, high-volume practices doing to the patient-physician relationship at this point? (laughs) I think it's eroding the patient-physician relationship, to be honest. The way that the the system is driven is that you have patients going to see a lot of times, and this is not all practices, but a patient will see a physician maybe the first time, and they develop this algorithm that, you know, sometimes, well, if this doesn't help, we do this next. And if you create an algorithm-type approach and then you end up having nurse practitioners or other mid-levels that may be less trained in pain, Mm -hmm. now there's some really good ones out there, but... If you have people that are not as in tune with the multiple options and the different ways that you can approach things, yeah. then unfortunately you perpetuate this, whether it's opioids, they just keep giving opioids because they're not really evaluating the patient. They're just running them through to get through the, through the appointment. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Let's move now to genes. Our genetic makeup influences our health. I'm thinking of things like our blood pressure and cholesterol levels. But... We're not at the mercy of our genes. 
So how do you think making better choices can help avoid chronic pain? There's this new area they call epigenetics, but essentially just because you have a genetic sequence, you know, of how, how what your code is that we always think of is that we, we get from our parents and it just translates every time the same way. Mm-hmm. It's actually our behaviors and how we are taking that those genes that we have, those behaviors help us actually produce whether it's the proteins and the various things that help really dictate what's going on within our bodies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we put in our body from a nutritional standpoint or even the exercise that we do and how it can turn on and off genes to actually help us be healthier from within. And obviously the more that we move and and the better nutrition that we have and and the more that we optimize our own internal health, the better off we're going to be from a pain standpoint. These things we see around us in multiple medical problems, whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure and various things that you're turning on and off genes that are, whether they're good or bad, you are creating what you are. That's right. And I think the science of epigenetics is just beginning to take hold. And again, uh, you mentioned this earlier, epigenetics relates to changes in how the gene functions Mm -hmm. without DNA sequence changes. And this is accomplished by triggering certain things in the environment, uh, as you mentioned, nutrition, stress. And what we've learned is that certain epigenetic factors uh, can influence the expression of pain genes, thereby affecting pain processing in certain pain conditions. You know, Melissa, a lot of patients in pain are afraid to move that part of the body that hurts. I mean, it makes sense. Right. But why isn't that healthy? Whenever you're avoiding pain in general, it's almost like you're turning that alarm system on even more, Mm -hmm. as if that is something you shouldn't be doing. That alarm system, it's almost like it can get louder, easier. But when you're moving, you're kind of telling your body that, it's it's okay, but you, you don't want to move so much that you set that too high, mm-hmm. and you obviously don't want to do nothing. So you've got to find that place where your particular nervous system, your particular body can handle effort. Exactly. In fact, research suggests that uh, fear avoidance, which is the medical term that we're talking about here, that fear avoidance behaviors in patients and health professionals can lead to a negative impact on low back pain outcomes because the behaviors delay recovery and heighten disability. Is exercise the magic bullet? We'll share the details after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. Boston Scientific, a leader in microelectric implantable technologies used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Visit TameThePain.com to learn about treatment options for chronic pain. Welcome back. 
We have evidence that if you rarely move or exercise, there's more muscular tension and higher sensitivity to pain. So there's a higher level of importance to exercise in reducing sensitivity to pain. I mean, that's why I say exercise is so incredibly powerful because you are exerting this or orchestrating these multiple things within your body, your own pharmacy of sorts mm-hmm. and endorphins and other things that no one on the outside really can do for you. Exactly. Now, let me ask you about non-invasive therapies, because you're a proponent of offering non-invasive therapies before things like medications or injections or certainly surgery. What are those particular therapies that you're talking about and for which conditions? Say you had someone who had sacroiliac joint pain, but it's so exquisite that you just need it to calm down. Some physical therapists out there have been very impressed with the McKenzie approach or Feldenkrais body awareness or the Agoscu method of postural assessments, and even some chiropractors that work on this SFMA uh, approach and different methods of evaluating which path to go down to figure out uh, what are we really targeting because the pain that you feel may not be the cause of the problem mm-hmm, right. uh, as far as where you think it is. And those methods that you described, for example, the McKenzie method for neck and back pain performed by physical therapists, Feldenkrais, the Egoscue method, and chiropractic, I think, can all help facilitate range of motion, daily function, balance, and flexibility. And by the way, check the website out, paulchristomd.com, for shows on Feldenkrais and the Egoscue method, because they're both compelling and they both provide intriguing new information about specific techniques that can relieve pain. Now, let's go to chapter 10. In that chapter, you quote the Institute of Medicine report on relieving pain in America, which says, numerous pain sufferers describe being driven to have surgeries that only ended up exacerbating their pain and causing greater disability. Why are patients being driven down that path of surgery? Oh, they're desperate. You have this kind of problem. You go do this. Okay, that didn't work. Let's go do this. It's almost like the last opportunity or option is the surgery. It's really hard to watch because I've seen so many patients there. They've had like five back surgeries, but now they've got a spinal cord stimulator, a pain pump, and they're on massive amounts of opioids, and and nothing's helping them. That's right. Now, I want to say that in the context of pain, surgery is important, though, in cases where a patient might have a cancerous mass, for example, Mm -hmm. around the spinal cord or what's called an epidural hematoma, bleeding around the spinal cord, or a herniated disc, or spinal stenosis that's compressing the spinal cord or spinal nerves and causing neurologic changes, or if there's spinal instability. Right. You know, we, we've certainly seen many patients who've undergone spine surgery for back pain. Many times, though, the pain remains the same or worsens. Or, you know, I've had patients who will say that it eased the pain for several months and then it's returned. Sure. What do you recommend, Melissa, instead of lumbar fusion for patients with back pain? There's what's called cognitive behavioral therapy and and kind of assessing you and your thought process, Mm -hmm. which I think actually goes hand in hand with this whole... Um, understanding uh, or or trying to minimize the catastrophization that some patients have about uh, maybe their back is incredibly unstable or um, even along with the lines of the pain avoidance um, tendencies for Mm -hmm. patients, Mm -hmm. which I think only gets worse each time they have surgery. (laughs) But um, as far as 
the thing that they can do is more of an intensive type physical therapy. The You want therapy that actually engages with the therapist and actually helps you understand and helps you do things for yourself when you're not at that therapy session. So those two in combination. Yeah, in fact, in one publication, spine surgeons say that there is no benefit to lumbar fusion when comparing it to intensive physical therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, you also talk about the connective tissue in your book. Connective tissue is also called fascia. It keeps the muscles, bones, organs all fitting together. It's sort of like the skin, but exists on the inside of the body and contains collagen and elastin. So share some surprising details about it and how it can cause pain. They tried to look in reverse where the nerves within the connective tissue and track them back towards the spine area Mm -hmm. and just showing the innervation of the connective tissue and the cells that can have this, this type of reaction to other cells within the connective tissue. It alludes the idea that this connective tissue is an area that, um, probably some really good reasons why some of these things help certain people. And I think it helps some people more than others because it depends on their sensitivity of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And many might not be aware that certain treatments are available for the connective tissue, like massage therapy, osteopathic manipulative therapy, physical therapy, and even yoga. Now let's look at sugar. As neonates and infants, sugar can help reduce pain. But in adults, what does it do to pain? As a general rule, if you're not really paying attention to your nutrition, you're getting a lot more sugar uh, than necessary. Mm-hmm. It creates an inflammatory state. If you're having joint pain and you're one of those patients that is susceptible to joint pain, it would be worth a trial to try to just free your body of all this excessive sugar. I agree. What happens is that a high sugar diet produces more AGEs, those are advanced glycation end products, which are proteins that can attach to cells, like red blood cells, and then clump together. This triggers an immune response leading to inflammation. So AGEs can lead to aging, diabetes, arthritis, and even fibromyalgia. Now, talk to us about the relationship between BMI, or body mass index, weight, and pain. 25 to 30 is considered overweight. But when you get over like 40 um, BMI, uh, that's which is the weight and the height compared to each other, you're looking at 254% more pain. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge increase. And in fact, there was a study with over 1 million adults that showed large increases in pain as patients became more obese. Yeah. Now, pain is no laughing matter for sure. Yet, laughter has a surprising effect on pain, doesn't it? <laughs> If you stubbed your toe and you won the lottery, you really wouldn't care about the stubbed toe. You're you're distracted by something so incredible and and wonderful that your brain doesn't sense it needs to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Laughter is one of those positive uh, endorphins, all the good things that you feel inside. If you can unleash your own pharmacy within in a positive way, (laughs) why not help yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I agree. In fact, you know, we have evidence that laughter increases dopamine, which is the feel-good chemical, and decreases cortisol, which is a stress hormone. You know, I feel like most of your recommendations in your book will be most helpful for those with musculoskeletal pain. I think that musculoskeletal medicine in general will benefit a lot from this approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously people that have injuries yeah. or surgeries and actually have direct insults that you've got to harness some invasive things to help calm down the system mm-hmm. and try to get some semblance of some homeostasis for that patient. Now, we have a couple more minutes, but before we close, would you give us an outline of your anti-pain lifestyle? It's all about self-care 
and appreciating the benefits of self-care, mm-hmm. utilizing the medical system more rationally. If you're using injections or opioids or surgeries, to recognize the medical system is more of a bridge and not a train to get on. So I'm really trying to say in anti-pain lifestyle that you're an active participant in your own health and wellness versus a passive recipient of the medical system. And I think that's a terrific message to remember. Dr. Katie, thanks so much for being here today. And good luck with your book, Pandemic. No, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.